25. Round the Gulf of Finland after a period of severe cold, the red granite columns of St. Isaac's Church are apparently transformed into spotless marble by the congelation of moisture on their surface. In the same manner I have seen a grey wall at Irkutsk changed in a night and morning to a dazzling whiteness. The crystalline formation of the frost had all the varieties of the kaleidoscope without its colors. I slept well during the night, awaking occasionally at the stations or when the sleigh experienced an unusually heavy thump. In the morning I learned that we had traveled a hundred and sixty versts from Irkutsk. The road was magnificent after leaving the valley of the Angara, and the sleigh glided easily and with very little jolting. No cloud above, no earth below, a universe of sky and snow. I woke to daylight and found a monotonous country destitute of mountains and possessing few hills. It was generally wooded, and where under cultivation near the villages there was an appearance of fertility. There were long distances between the clusters of houses, and I was continually reminded of the abundant room for increase of population. We stopped for breakfast soon after sunrise. The samovar was ordered and our servants brought a creditable supply of toothsome little cakes and pies. These with half a dozen cups of tea to each person prepared us for a ride of several hours. We dined a little before sunset, and for one I can testify that full justice was done to the dinner. Very little can be had at the stations on this road, so that experienced travelers carry their own provisions. One can always obtain hot water, and generally bread, and eggs, but nothing else is certain. In winter, Provisions can be easily carried as the frost preserves them alike from decaying or crushing. Soup, meats, bread, and other edibles can be carried on long routes with perfect facility. There is a favorite preparation for Russian travel under the name of Filmania. It is a little ball of minced meat covered with dough, the whole being no larger than a robin's egg. In a frozen state a bag full of Filmania is like the same quantity of walnuts or marbles, and can be tossed about with impunity. When a traveler wishes to dine upon this article he orders a pot of boiling water and tosses a double handful of filmania into it. After five minutes boiling the mass is ready to be eaten in the form of soup. Salt, pepper, and vinegar can be used with it to one's liking. Our diner du voyage consisted of filmania, roast beef, and partridge with bread, cakes, tea, and quass. Our table furniture was somewhat limited, and the room was littered with garments temporarily discarded. The ladies were crinolineless, and their coiffures were decidedly not Parisian. My costume was a cross between a shooting outfit and the everyday dress of a stevedore, while my hair appeared as if recently dressed with a currant bush. Captain Paul was equally unpresentable in fastidious parlors, but whatever our peril it did not diminish the keenness of our appetites. The dinner was good, and the diners were hungry and happy. Fashion is wholly rejected on the Siberian road and each one makes his toilet without regard to French principles and tastes. According to Russian custom, somebody was to be thanked for the meal. As the dinner came from the provisions in the servant's sleigh we presented our acknowledgments to Madame Rodstveni. With the forethought of an experienced traveler the lady had carefully provided her edibles and so abundant was her store that my supply was rarely drawn upon. We were more like a picnic party than a company of travelers on a long journey in a Siberian winter. Mademoiselle was fluent in French, and charming in its use. The only drawback to general conversation was my inability to talk long with Madame except by interpretation. In our halts we managed to pass the time in tea drinking, conversation, and sometimes with music of an impromptu character. I remember favoring air appreciative audience with a solo on a trunk key, 
followed by Mademoiselle and the captain in a duet on a tin cup and a horn comb covered with leper paper. There was very little scenery worthy of note. The villages generally lay in single streets each containing from ten to a hundred houses. Between these clusters of dwellings there was little to be seen beyond a succession of wooded ridges with stretches of open ground. The continued snowscape offered no great variety on the first day's travel, and before night I began to think it monotonous. The villages were from ten to twenty miles apart, and very much the same in general characteristics. The stations had a family likeness, each had a traveler's room more or less comfortable, and a few apartments for the smotry and his attendants. The traveler's room had some rough chairs, one or two hard sofas or benches, and the same number of tables. While the horses were being changed we had our option to enter the station or stay out of doors. I generally preferred the latter alternative on account of the high temperature of the waiting rooms, which necessitated casting off one's outer garment on entering. During our halts I was fain to refresh myself with a little leg stretching and found it a great relief. The first movement at a station is to present the Paderoshnia and demand horses. Marco Polo says, that the great Khan of Tartary had posting stations 25 miles apart on the principal roads of his empire. A messenger or traveler carried a paper authorizing him to procure horses, and was always promptly supplied. The Paderoshnia is of ancient date. If Marco be trustworthy, it is not less important to a Russian traveler at present than to a Tartar one in earlier times. Our documents were efficacious, and usually brought horses with little delay. The size of our party was a disadvantage as we occasionally found one or two sets of horses ready but were obliged to wait a short time for a third. Paul had a permit to impress horses in the villages while I carried a special passport requesting the authorities to lend me all needed assistance. This was generally construed into dispatching me promptly, and we rarely failed with a little persuasion and money to secure horses for the third sleigh. When we entered the stations for any purpose the sleighs and their contents remained unguarded in the streets, but we never lost anything by theft. With recollections of my experience at stage stations in America, I never felt quite at ease at leaving our property to care for itself. My companions assured me that thefts from posting vehicles seldom occur although the country numbers many convicts among its inhabitants. The native Siberians have a reputation for honesty and the majority of the exiles for minor offenses lead correct lives. I presume that wickedly inclined persons in villages are deterred from stealing on account of the probability of detection and punishment. So far as my experience goes the inhabitants of Siberia are more honest than those of European Russia. In Siberia our slaves required no watching when we left them. After passing the Ural Mountains it was necessary to hire a man to look after our property when we breakfasted and dined the horses being the property of the station we paid for them at every change. On no account was the Navajo or drink money to the driver forgotten, and it varied according to the service rendered. If the driver did well but made no special exertion we gave him eight or ten kopecks, and increased the amount as we thought he deserved. On the other hand if he was obstinate and inaccommodating he obtained nothing. If he argued that the regulations required only a certain speed we retorted that the regulations said nothing about drink money. In general we found the Yamshiks obliging and fully entitled to their gratuities. We went at breakneck pace where the roads permitted, and frequently where they did not. A traveler's speed depends considerably on the drink money he is reported to have given on the previous stage. If illiberal to a good driver or liberal to a bad one he cannot expect rapid progress. 
The regulations require a speed of 10 versus 6 to 3 miles per hour for vehicles not on government service. If the roads are bad the driver can lessen his pace, but he must make all proper exertion to keep up to the schedule. When they are good and the driver is thirsty as he generally island the regulations are not heeded. We arranged for my sleigh to lead, and that of the servants to bring up the rear. Whatever speed we went the others were morally certain to follow, and our progress was frequently exciting. Money was potent, and we employed it. Fifteen kopecks was a liberal gratuity, and twenty bordered on the munificent. When we increased our offer to twenty-five or thirty it was pretty certain to awaken enthusiasm. Sometimes the pecuniary argument failed, and obliged us to proceed at the legal rate. In such cases we generally turned aside and placed the ladies in advance. We made 12, 14, or 16 versts per hour, and on one occasion I held my watch, and found that we traveled a trifle less than 22 versts or about 14 and a half miles in 60 minutes. I do not think I ever rode in America at such a pace without steam except once when a horse ran away with me. Ordinarily we traveled faster than the rate prescribed by regulation, and only when the roads were bad did we fall below it. We studied the matter of drink money till it became an exact science. About noon on the first day from Irkutsk we took a Yenshik who proved sullen in the highest degree. The country was gently undulating, and the roads superb but our promises of Navaku were of no avail. We offered and entreated in vain. As a last resort we shouted in French to the ladies and suggested that they take the lead. Our Yenshik ordered his comrade to keep his place, and refused to turn aside to allow him to pass. He even slackened his speed and drew his horses to a walk. Our stout-armed garçon took a position on our sleigh, and by a fistic argument succeeded in turning us aside. We made only fair progress, and were glad when the drive was ended. When we began our rapid traveling, I had fears that the sleigh would go to pieces in consequence, but was soon convinced that everything was lovely. The sport was exciting, and greatly relieved the monotony of travel. We were so protected by furs pillows, blankets, and hay, that our jolting and bounding had no serious result. The ladies enjoyed it as much as ourselves, and were not at all inconvenienced by any ordinary shaking. Once at the end of a furious ride of twenty versts, I found the madam asleep and learned that she had been so since leaving the last station. I have ridden much in American stagecoaches, and witnessed some fine driving in the West and in California, but for rapidity and dash. Commend me always to the Siberian Yenshiks. Chapter XXXIX. On the second morning we stopped at Tulum's to deliver several boxes that encumbered the sleighs. The servants have a way of putting small articles, and sometimes large ones, in the forward end of the vehicle. They are no special annoyance to a person of short stature, but in my own case I was not reconciled to the practice. A Russian sleigh is shaped somewhat like a laundry smoothing iron, much narrower forward than aft so that a traveler does not usually find the space beneath the driver a world too wide for his shrunk shanks. We thawed out over a steaming samovar with plenty of hot tea. The lady of the house brought a bottle of Nalifka of such curious though agreeable flavor that I asked of what fruit it was made. Nothing but orange peel, was the reply. Every Siberian housewife considers it her duty to prepare a goodly supply of Nalifka during the autumn. A glass jar holding two or three gallons is filled to the neck with any kind of fruit or berries, currants and gooseberries being oftenest used. The jar is then filled with native whiskey, and placed in a southern window where it is exposed to the sunlight and the heat of the room for ten days. 
The whiskey is then poured off, mixed with an equal quantity of water, placed in a kettle with a pound of sugar to each gallon, and boiled for a few minutes. When cooled and strained it is bottled and goes to the cellar. Many Siberians prefer Nalifka to foreign wines, and a former governor general attempted to make it fashionable. He eschewed imported wine and substituted Nalifka, but his example was not imitated to the extent he desired. Our halt consumed three or four hours. After we started an unfortunate pig was found entangled in the framework of my sleigh, and before we could let him out he was pretty well bruised and shaken up. How he came there we were puzzled to know. But I do not believe he ever willingly troubled a sleigh again. We encountered many caravans of sleds laden with merchandise. They were made up much like the trains I described between Kyotka and Lake Baikal. There being four or five sleds to each man, the horses generally guided themselves, and followed their leaders with great fidelity. While we were stopping to make some repairs near the foot of a hill, I was interested in the display of equine intelligence. As a caravan reached the top of the hill each horse stopped till the one preceding him had descended, holding back as if restrained by reins he walked half down the descent, and then finished the hill and crossed the hollow below it at a trot, one after another passed in this manner without guidance, exactly as if controlled by a driver. I noticed that the horses were quite skillful in selecting the best parts of the road. I have occasionally seen a horse pause when there were three or four tracks through the snow and make his choice with apparent deliberation. I recollect a schoolboy composition that declared in its first sentence, The horse is a noble animal, but I never knew until I traveled in Siberia how much he is entitled to a patent of nobility. In the daytime we had little trouble with these caravans, as they generally gave us the road on hearing our bells. If the way was wide the horses usually turned aside of their own accord, where it was narrow they were unwilling to step in the snow and did not until directed by their drivers. If the latter were dilatory our Yemshiks turned aside and revenged themselves by lashing some of the sled horses and all the drivers they could reach. In the night we found more difficulty as the caravan horses desired to keep the road, and their drivers were generally asleep. We were bumped against innumerable sleds in the hours of darkness. The outriggers alone prevented our sleighs going to pieces. The trains going eastward carried assorted cargoes of merchandise for Siberia and China. Those traveling westward were generally loaded with tea and chests, covered with cowhide. The amount of traffic over the principal road through Siberia is very large. When we halted for dinner I brought a bottle of champagne from my sleigh. It was the best of the Klikwat brand and frozen as solid as a block of ice. It stood half an hour in a warm room before thawing enough to drip slowly into our glasses and was the most perfect champagne frappe I ever saw. A bottle of cognac was a great deal colder than ordinary ice, and when we brought it into the station the moisture in the warm room congealed upon it to the thickness of cardboard. After this display I doubted the existence of latent heat in alcohol. Just as we finished dinner the post with five vehicles was announced. We hastened to put on our furs and sprang into the sleighs with the least possible delay. There was no fear that we should lose the first and second set of horses, but the last one might be taken for the post as the ladies had only a third-class Tadaroshnia. The Yemshiks were as anxious to escape as ourselves, as the business of carrying the mail does not produce Navodka. The post between Irkutsk and Krasnoyarsk passes twice a week each way, and we frequently encountered it. Where it had just passed a station there was occasionally a scarcity of horses that delayed us till village teams were abroad. A postillion accompanies each convoy, 
and is responsible for its security. Travelers sometimes purchase tickets and have their vehicles accompany the post, but in so doing their patience is pretty severely taxed. The postillion is a soldier or other government employee, and must be armed to repel robbers. One of these conductors was a boy of 14 who appeared under heavy responsibility. I watched him loading a pistol at a station and was amused at his ostentatious manner. When the operation was completed he fixed the weapon in his belt and swaggered out with the air of the heavy tragedian at the old Bowery. Another postillion stuck around with pistols and knives looked like a military museum on its travels. From our dining station we left the main road, and traveled several versts along the frozen surface of the Birusa River. The snow lay in ridges, and as we drove rapidly over them we were tossed like a yawl in a hopping sea. It was a foretaste of what was in store for me at later periods of my journey. The Birusa is rich in gold deposits, and the government formerly maintained extensive mining establishments in its valley. About nine o'clock in the evening we voted to take tea. On entering the station I found the floor covered with a dormant mass, exhaling an odor not altogether spicy. I bumped my head against a sort of wide shelf suspended 18 or 20 inches from the ceiling, and sustaining several sleepers. Here, said Paul, is another chamber a coucher, as he attempted to pull aside a curtain at the top of the brick stove. A female head and shoulders were exposed for an instant, until a stout hand grasped and retained the curtain. The suspended shelf or false ceiling is quite common in the peasant houses, and especially at the stations. The yenshiks and other attaches of the concern are lodged here and on the floor. Beds being a luxury they rarely obtain. Frequently a small house would be as densely packed as the steerage of a passenger ship, and I never desired to linger in these crowded apartments. A Russian house has little or no ventilation, and the effect of a score of sleepers on the air of a room is better imagined than described. On the road west of Irkutsk the rules require each smotrial to keep ten teams or thirty horses, ready for use. Many of them have more than that number, and the villages can supply any ordinary demand after the regular force is exhausted. Fourteen yenshiks are kept at every station, and all was ready for service. They are boarded at the expense of the smotrial, and receive about five rubles each per month, with as much drink money as they can obtain. Frequently they make two journeys a day to the next station, returning without loads. They appeared on the most amiable terms with each other, and I saw no quarreling over their work. On our first and second nights from Irkutsk the weather was cold, the thermometer standing at 15 or 20 degrees below zero. On the third day the temperature rose quite rapidly, and by noon it was just below the freezing point. Our furs designed for cold weather became uncomfortably warm and I threw off my outer garments and rode in my sheepskin coat. In the evening we experienced a feeling of suffocation on closing the sleigh, and were glad to open it again. We rode all night with the wine beating pleasantly against our faces, and from time to time lost our consciousness in sleep. For nearly two days the warm weather continued, and subjected us to inconveniences. We did not travel as rapidly as in the colder days, the road being less favorable and the horses diminishing their energy with the increased warmth. Some of our provisions were in danger of spoiling as they were designed for transportation only in a frozen state. Between Nynudensk and Kansk the snow was scanty, and the road occasionally bad. The country preserved its slightly undulating character, and presented no features of interest. Where we found sufficient snow we proceeded rapidly, sometimes leaving the summer road and taking to the open ground, and forests on either side. 
we pitched into a great many alcobans, analogous to American hog wallows or cradle holes. To dash into one of these at full speed gives a shock like a boat thumping on the shore. It is only with pillows, furs, and hay that a traveler can escape contusions. In mild doses alcobas are an excellent tonic, but the traveler who takes them in excess may easily imagine himself enjoying a field day at Donnybrook Fair. An hour before reaching Kansk one of our horses fell dead and brought us to a sudden halt. The Yamshik tried various expedients to discover signs of life but to no purpose. Paul and I formed a board of survey, and sat upon the beast, the others lays past us during our consultation, and were very soon out of sight, when satisfied that the animal, as a horse, was of no further use, the Yamshik pulled him to the roadside, stripped off his harness, and proceeded with our reduced team. I asked who was responsible for the loss, and was told it was no affair of ours. The government pays for horses killed in the service of couriers, as these gentlemen compel very high speed. On a second or third rate Paderoshnian the death of a horse is the loss of its owner. Horses are not expensive in this region, an ordinary roadster being worth from 15 to 20 rubles. Within a mile of Kants the road was bare of snow and as we had but two horses to our sleigh I proposed walking into town. We passed a long train of sleds on their way to market with loads of wood and hay. Tea was ready for us when we arrived at the station, and we were equally ready for it. After my fifth cup I walked through the public square as it was market day, and the people were in the midst of traffic, fish, meat, hay, wood, and a great quantity of miscellaneous articles were offered for sale. In general terms the market was a sort of pocket edition of the one at Irkutsk. I practiced my knowledge of Russian in purchasing a quantity of rope to use in case of accidents. Foreigners were not often seen there if I may judge of the curiosity with which I was regarded. Kansk is a town of about 3,000 inhabitants, and stands on the Gon, a tributary of the Yenisei. We were told there was little snow to the first station, and were advised to take five horses to each sleigh. We found the road a combination of thin snow and bare ground, the latter predominating. We proceeded very well, the Yamshiks maintaining sublime indifference to the character of the track. They plied their whips vigorously in the probable expectation of drink money. The one on my sleigh regaled us with an account of the perfectly awful condition of the road to Krasnoyarsk. About sunset we changed horses, 30 versts from Kansk, and found no cheering prospect ahead. We drowned our sorrows in the flowing teacup, and fortified ourselves with a large amount of heat. Tea was the sovereign remedy for all our ills, and we used it most liberally. We set out with misgivings and promised liberal rewards to the Yenshiks, if they took us well and safely. The road was undeniably bad, with here and there a redeeming streak of goodness. Notwithstanding the jolts I slept pretty well during the night. In the morning we took tea 50 versts from Krasnoyarsk and learned that there was absolutely no snow for the last 30 versts before reaching the city. There was fortunately a good snow road to the intervening village where we must change to wheels. Curiously enough the snow extended up to the very door of the last station, and utterly disappeared three feet beyond. Looking one way we saw bare earth, while in the other direction there was a good road for slaying. At this point we arranged our program over the inevitable cakes and tea. The ladies were to leave their vashok until their return to Irkutsk ten or twelve days later. The remaining sleighs were unladen and mounted upon wheels. We piled our baggage into Tilyadas with the exception of a few articles that remained in the sleighs. The ladies with their maid took one wagon, 
while Paul and myself rode in another, the man-servant conveying the slaves. The whole arrangement was promptly effected, the villagers sent it a job on our arrival, and were ready for proposals. My sleigh was lifted and fastened into a wagon about as quickly as a hackman would arrange a trunk. Place ox dames tutors. We sent away the ladies half an hour in advance of the rest of the party. Our Tilyata was a rickety affair, not half so roomy as the sleigh, but as the ride was short the discomfort was of little consequence. We had four ill-conditioned steeds, but before we had gone twenty rods one of the brutes persistently faced about and attempted to come inside the vehicle, though he did not succeed. After vain efforts to set him right, the Yamshik turned him loose, and he bolted homeward contentedly. We climbed and descended a long hill near the village and then found a level country quite free from snow, and furnishing a fine road. I was told that very little snow falls within twenty miles of Krasnoyarsk, and that it is generally necessary to use wheels there in the winter months. The reason was not explained to me, but probably the general configuration of the country is much like that near Cheetah. Krasnoyarsk lies on the Yenisei which has a northerly course into the Arctic Ocean. The mountains bounding the valley are not lofty but sufficiently high to wring the moisture from the snow clouds, both above and below Krasnoyarsk. There is but little snow even in severe seasons. Our animals were superbly atrocious, and made good speed only on descending grades. We were four hours going thirty versts, and for three-fourths that distance our route was equal to the Bloomingdale Road. Occasionally we saw farmhouses with a dejected appearance as if the winter had come upon them unawares. From the quantity of ground enclosed by fences I judged the land was fertile, and well cultivated. Toward sunset we saw the domes of Krasnoyarsk rising beyond the frozen Yenisei. We crossed the river on the ice, and passed near several women engaged in rinsing clothes. A laundress does her washing at the house, but rinses her linen at the river. In summer this may be well enough, but it seemed to me that the winter exercise of standing in a keen wine with the thermometer below zero and rinsing clothes in a hole cut through the ice was anything but agreeable. It was a cold day, and I was well wrapped in furs, but these women were in ordinary clothing, and some had bare legs. They stood at the edges of circular holes in the ice, and after swashing the linen a short time in the water, run it with their purple hands. How they escaped frostbites I cannot imagine. The Yenisei is a magnificent river, one of the largest in Siberia. It is difficult to estimate with accuracy any distance upon ice, and I may be far from correct in considering the Yenisei a thousand yards wide at Krasnoyarsk. The telegraph wires are supported on tall masts as at the crossing of the Missouri near Kansas City. In summer there are two steamboats navigating the river from Yeniseisk to the Arctic Ocean. Rapids and shoals below Krasnoyarsk prevent their ascending to the latter town. The tributaries of the Yenisei are quite rich in gold deposits and support a mining business of considerable extent. Krasnoyarsk derives its name from the red hills in its vicinity, and the color of the soil where it stands. It is on the left bank of the Yenisei, and has about 10,000 inhabitants. It was nearly night when we climbed the sloping road in the hillside, and reached the level of the plateau. The ladies insisted that we should occupy their house during our stay, and utterly forbade our going to the hotel. While walking up the hill the captain hailed a washerwoman, and asked for the residence of Madame Rodstveni. Her reply was so voluminous, and so rapidly given that my friend was utterly bewildered, and comprehended nothing. To his astonishment I told him that I understood the direction. See, it's impossible, he declared. 
By no means, I replied. The madam lives in a stone house to the left of the Gastini Devere. The washerwoman said so. Following my advice we found the house. As we entered the courtyard, the captain begged to know by what possibility I understood in his own language what he could not. I explained that while the woman spoke so glibly I caught the words, Doma, Cayman, Noleva, Gastini Devere. I understood only the essential part of her instruction, and was not confused by the rest. I was somewhat reluctant to convert a private house into a hotel as I expected to remain four or five days, but Siberian hospitality does not stop at trifles, and my objections were promptly overruled. After toilet and dinner, Paul and I were parboiled in the bathhouse of the establishment. An able-bodied mujik scrubbed me so thoroughly as to suggest the possibility of removing the cuticle. In the morning I went to the bank to change some large bills into a one-ruble notes for use on the road. Horses must be paid for at every station, and it is therefore desirable to carry the smallest notes with abundance of silver and copper to make change. The bank was much like institutions of its class elsewhere, and transacted my business promptly. The banks in Siberia are branches of the Imperial Bank at St. Petersburg. They receive deposits, and negotiate exchanges and remittances just like private banks, but do not undertake risky business. The officers are servants of the government and receive their instructions from the parent bank. My finances arranged. I went to the telegraph office to send a message to a friend. My dispatch was written in Russian, and I paid for message and response. A receipt was given me stating the day, hour, and minute of filing the dispatch, its destination, address, length, and amount paid. When I received the response I found a statement of the exact time it was filed for transmission and also of its reception at Krasnoyarsk. This is the ordinary routine of the Russian telegraph system. I commend it to the notice of interested persons in America. There is no free telegraphing on the government lines. Every dispatch over the wires being paid for by somebody. If on government business the sender pays the regular tariff and is reimbursed from the treasury. I was told that the officers of the telegraph paid for their own family messages but had the privilege of conversing on the lines free of charge. High position does not confer immunity. When the Tsarevich was married, General Korsakov sent his congratulations by telegraph, and received a response from the Emperor. Both messages were paid for by the sender without reduction or trust. I found the general features of Krasnoyarsk much like those of Irkutsk. Official and civilian inhabitants dressed, lived, walked, breathed, drank and gambled like their kindred nearer the east. It h.